well. Uh, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse of McAllen. It's a joy to be with you tonight, uh, preaching God's Word, uh, getting to observe Good Friday in the event that you uh, missed out on Elsie's reading. We're going to find ourselves in Romans chapter 5 this evening. Uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses, 18 through 21. Today we're going to be observing Good Friday, the day where the Lord Jesus was hung on a cross after being arrested and tried, beaten beyond recognition, and then crucified before the public, family, and friends. We do not observe Good Friday because Jesus is still on that same cross. In fact, on a day that seemed to be filled with no hope, a day that was dark and brutal, a day where it looked as if evil had won, was actually a day where God in Christ was triumphant over Satan, hell, sin, demons, death, and To further it, three days later, that is after he was crucified and died, Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over all, putting his enemies to shame. And so right now, in the present, let me be very, very clear, Jesus is alive and well, is seated at the right hand of the Father, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to reclaim his church. Today we look back at the cross, examining the condition and posture of our hearts toward God and the cost of redemption for sinners. Redemption is a word that you often see, whether it's in, for me, I've seen it in UFC fights where someone wants to redeem themselves after a loss. You might see it when you go to the arcade and you want to redeem points or you want a second shot at something. Redemption or change is someone, excuse me, is something that everyone desires to see and experience, even if they don't like change. If given the opportunity, everyone would change one thing about themselves. Or if given enough time to reflect, we would realize that our hearts long for something different and something more. The late C.S. Lewis said it this way, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There is a longing that we all have in which we hope change would bring about some sense of Satisfaction. For some, it may be physical change. For some, it might be emotional change. For some, it may be material change. But then we're left with spiritual change. Something permanent that simply quenches this longing that we all, if we're honest, have. The problem, however, is that everyone is searching for spiritual change and is willing to go to extreme measures to find it, but there seems to be little satisfaction actually taking place. 
bottom line is that spiritual change can only happen from the inside out and not the other way around. In fact, there can be no spiritual change apart from redemption. To be redeemed doesn't simply mean to be given a second chance. It means to be purchased. It means to be made new. However, in order for there to be redemption, a sacrifice must be made. The desire for, or the desire to change, comes from a longing that cannot be met apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is, you and I are unable to please God and do any kind of spiritual good apart from redemption first. Unless we are redeemed. Unless we are purchased. Because if we are not purchased, if we are not redeemed, then that means by definition we are enslaved. And if we are enslaved, then where is our hope? As we look back to Good Friday, we examine the death of Christ on the cross for a day that is thought to be without hope and a day where we thought evil had won and we actually see triumph. And here's what I want you to know. Redemption in Christ is the result of the grace of God meeting the wrath of God on the cross. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at verse 18 in Romans 5. Father, we begin our time this evening with Thanksgiving. A year ago this week, we were at home watching and working through our time on Good Friday through a screen. And tonight, by your grace, the saints gather to observe Good Friday together the goodness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So with that in mind, Father, we pray that you would be glorified tonight. We pray that your word would be sweeter than honey. And that you, Holy Spirit, would comfort, convict, and challenge our hearts with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. In Romans 5, we see two individual representatives of humanity. We see those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And each one of us begins life in Adam. And in an effort to understand how and why this exists, we must look back at the beginning to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. This is why Paul writes in verse 18, Therefore, since teeth. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. The word trespass means to violate the word of God. Therefore, it begs the question, what happened? It's important to look back at Genesis because, for one, the longings that I was talking to you about, the longings that you and I have to be satisfied or changed or to be made new, actually come from somewhere. They're not random. And in addition to that, when we go back to Genesis, we 
find the answer to the question of what happens. So when we read, when Paul says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, the question is, what trespass? We can go to Genesis to find the answer. And so I'll give you a brief overview. When you open the first chapter of Genesis, we see that in the beginning, God spoke creation into existence and said that it was then he created man in his image and said that man was, quote, very good. In God creating man in his image, man was designed to reflect the character and glory of God. In the beginning, man was at peace with God. We call this shalom. Meaning that we were in right relationship with God. That there was no rebellion toward God. And that man, as he reflected, or as Adam and Eve reflected the character and glory of God, there was no sin. But as we work our way through the first two chapters of Genesis and come to the third chapter, we see that something happens. We see that Adam and Eve sinned against God. And then Adam is held responsible. And so when you look at Genesis 3, we see that uh, Satan, the serpent, comes to Eve and begins to uh, pick at her brain with the question on her identity, asking, did God really say what he just told you? And as we work through those verses, we see that Eve eats of the fruit and then gives to her husband, who was there with her. And so Adam is held responsible because he disobeyed God as he sinned alongside his wife and wanting to be like God and in addition to that not even protecting his wife. And so as the story continues to unfold we see that God comes to Adam and Eve and he meets them where they are and he puts things on the table and who does he call out? He calls out Adam. Are you? Says, Here I am. I was hiding. Why were you hiding? I was naked and ashamed. Who told you that you were naked? What is it that you have done? So he's putting things on the table. So what does Adam say? Adam says, Well, the woman who you created that you gave me gave me of the fruit to eat, and therefore I ate. So if you really think about it, this is your fault. And so as the story continues to unfold in Genesis 3, we see that the consequences of Adam's sin unfold into the rest of humanity. And now, as a result, we are separated from God because of our sin. As image bearers, our relationship with God has not only been distorted, but severed. We are now enemies to God. We would call this imputed sin, whereby Adam, we inherit his guilt and our nature is corrupt by sin. And in Romans 5, Paul provides us with three consequences of our fallen nature. The first one is in verse 18. I'll read it once more. Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. 
You see, in Adam, we are all condemned and under the wrath of God because we violate God's word. We are rebellion to God, running as far and as fast away from God as possible. And as a result, we are justly under his condemnation. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. And then you skip ahead to verse 19. Paul continues, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so what Paul tells us is that in Adam, we are all sinners by nature and choice. So not only are we under the wrath of God as we exercise our free will and do everything that we want to do, running as far and as fast away from God, at the same time, we are sinners by nature and choice. We do what we want to do. We consider ourselves the standards of ethics and morality and relationships. The Bible would say it this way, that we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Elsewhere in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says it this way, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in once in which you once walked. That word walked means that it was a lifestyle, that it was in your nature, that it was your identity. And one of the things that we talk about when it comes to identity is our identity determines our activity. And so in Adam, our identity is that we are sinners by nature and choice. And so our activity is labeled, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we live the passions of our flesh, that we carry out the desires of the body and mind, and by nature are children of wrath. Our hearts are hardened in Adam. Our hearts are made of stone in Adam. And from the beginning, it is our identity. And King David says it this way in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What he's saying is from the womb, I was a sinner. Thirdly, moving to verse 20, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In Adam, we are unable to please God. Paul describes that little phrase that the law increases the trespass. He is referring to the Old Testament law, which at the minimum reveals two things. Our inability to please God and our need for the Savior. In Adam, we are totally that is that there is no part of us that isn't affected by sin. An example here would be your parent. As you cultivate culture in your home, and as you set rules to protect your kids, the minute you start putting a couple of rules down to protect them and to see them thrive, it's almost as if you just start resisting and rebelling every time you start putting some And so the rules are certainly there so that you can care for them and watch them and protect them. And at the same time, it shows that they don't want it. 
Additionally, I'm, I'm reminded of the story of a preacher who spent an entire sermon giving nothing but a list of sins. Something like 65 sins. And after the service, he got a letter from one of his congregants and the letter read, Thank you, Pastor, for teaching us about all those sins. There were several I did not know about and have not tried yet. <laughs> Where the law was added, sin abounded. In brief, the law reveals our helpless condition. It reveals the reality of our sin. As we look briefly back to Genesis, in the garden, God would have been just in removing or wiping out Adam and Eve, but he doesn't. See, in love, as they hid and blame shifted, and later in Genesis 3, we read that God sacrifices an animal and that he is the one that clothes them. He is the one that provides them with grace. He is the one that forgives them. It doesn't mean there weren't consequences to their sin. But by grace, it didn't affect their union. And in that same moment in Genesis, God promises that a second Adam would come to redeem his people. So to summarize this part, in Adam, we are condemned, we are sinners by nature and choice, and we are unable to please God. The beauty of this passage is that it isn't that bad. And so Paul continues. Or within the passage, Paul will pass. And he writes that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. That is God entering into human history in the flesh as the man, Jesus Christ, and does what Adam could not do and what we cannot do for ourselves. You see, in Adam we are in bondage to our sin, unable to take the chains off ourselves. And so what we need is the second Adam. So let's go back to verse 18. Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Where in Adam we were condemned, in Christ we are justified. That is, we are declared just or right God, that we have a legal standing, a good, righteous legal standing before God because of what Jesus has done for sinners through this one act of righteousness. To be justified before God is only possible through faith alone, not merit or achievement, and Jesus makes this possible by dying on a cross in our place and as our substitute. Sinners can now be declared righteous as we turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone. At the cross, 
the heart of Christ is revealed for sinners. Paul says it similarly in the same chapter that while we were still sinners, that's present tense, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Yet, on the other side of that coin, our hearts are revealed at the cross. We are guilty. Jesus was victorious for us. 
where you and I give in, Jesus stayed obedient, allowing him to be the Savior who sympathizes with us. And as God, Jesus was the only one who could bear the wrath of God for sinners. And through his sinless life and perfect obedience to God, he makes it possible for us to actually be reconciled and restored in right relationship with the Father. What was severed is now restored through Christ. So Christian, you are called to walk in righteousness, but do not forget that the righteousness in which you walk is the righteousness of another, not your own. And finally, number three, the end of verse 20 into 21, Paul says, The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace, that is, unmerited favor from God towards sinners, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign in righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where in Adam we are unable to please God, in Christ, sinners receive grace. Sometimes. Finally, where we previously could not please God, through his death and resurrection, sinners are given the forgiveness of sin. The grace of God is now poured out onto sinners, and redemption is now applied. That is, that we have been freed from our bondage to sin so that we would walk in a newness of life. Listen to me, you, your sin cannot outweigh the grace of God. The late R.C. Sproul says it this way, we live in the presence of a superabundance of grace that is far greater than the depths of our disobedience. I'll say it one time, it's really good. We live in the presence of a superabundance of grace that is far greater than the depths of our disobedience. Paul encourages the Christians in Colossae in this way. It's in chapter 2, we covered it a couple of weeks ago. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. Remember that word walk? That lifestyle, your identity, your nature, who you are, determines what you so walk in Christ. In Christ, Sinners are declared justified. Sinners are made righteous. Sinners receive grace. Everyone is looking for that change, some of that redemption. But apart from redemption, we are all enslaved. In this passage, and on Good Friday, we examine the contrast between two individuals, those in Adam and those in Christ. In Adam, we are not only slaves to our sin, but 
we are satisfied with our sin. In Christ, we are freed from the bondage to our sin and are utterly dissatisfied with sin. In Adam, we are spiritually dead and unable to please God. In Christ, we are made spiritually alive as he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and pours his spirit onto us, therefore making us or allowing us to be able to please God because of Christ. In Adam, we are separated from God by our sin. Yet in Christ, we are reconciled to God the Father his death and resurrection. In Adam, we blame and rebel and justify our sin, yet in Christ, he proclaims on our account that it is finished, that the work by which we are reconciled to God the Father has been accomplished and applied through Christ alone on the cross on our behalf as our substitute for sinners. In Adam, our heart of rebellion is revealed in Christ. His heart for sinners is revealed on the cross. So Christian, you have been bought with a price. Jesus died so that you would be free from your sin and new. This isn't a second chance, but a new life. Therefore, let us have confidence before God tonight in humility and thanksgiving. Confess your sin, Christian. Embrace the grace that you have received in Christ. Let us sing loudly, for our Savior is not on the cross, but is alive and well. You, the church, are the fruit of his resurrection. There is nothing, listen to me, there is nothing to pay him back for but worship and adoration. You have been given the free gift of salvation. You did not earn it. You were dead in your sin. And in Christ, he has made you alive. And if you don't know Jesus, really, really have to thank you. It's an honor to have him. And to quote or to use what scripture says, you are alienated from God. You are hostile to God. You cannot please God. You are at war with God. However, Jesus' death on the cross is an invitation to you to come and know him. This, his work on the cross, is available to you. Therefore, repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord who is willing and able to forgive you and satisfy your deepest need. Turn to him in repentance and faith and find redemption in him alone. At the cross, Redemption for sinners is made possible as the grace of God meets the wrath of God. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for who you are, gracious and merciful. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our substitute, our Savior, and our Redeemer. We thank you for Jesus because apart from him, we would still be dead in our sin, but praise be to Christ through the Holy Spirit that we have been made alive in Christ. To that end, Father, forgive us of our sin. The ones we know about, the ones we're hiding, the ones we don't need to know Meditation of our heart be accepting and pleasing to you. 